life can sometimes be peaceful. Awe-inspiring as I take in all that is around me. Tranquil. Life is peaceful. Up until it isn't. Sometimes I see the storm clouds coming. And at other times, the storms arrive unexpectedly that catch me by surprise. facing anxiety, doubt, temptation. When relational misunderstandings occur, when relationships blow up in my face, Is there really hope? Does the Bible really show me how to navigate life? To discover how the truth revealed in God's word can help me navigate the challenges of life. So I looked up a, um, the definition of what it means to navigate, and here, here's what the dictionary says in terms of what to navigate means. It means to move on, over, or through, and of course, typically that is used, that word's used to depict a ship, especially, or a boat in the water navigating a storm, uh, and or an airplane for that matter. We, we today know what navigation is, just hop in your car and put in the GPS, right? I don't know how many times I would be lost without GPS uh, getting me from point A to B. 
And what, what further that word talks about is directing and managing something, something so that you can stay the course. And so like a ship that's in the water and a storm pops up or winds come about that they didn't expect, if they don't rely on their navigating tools, they're going to get off course. It's just a given, right? That's how it works. Waves slap the boat around and you're going to get disoriented and you're going to see what looks like south is north and whatever it may be. It's just going to be a confusing mess without the navigating tools. Now, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that's life, right? I'm not the only one, right? That there's going to be things that are going to be thrown at us that are going to come our way in life that's going to call for us to navigate. And we've got to have the tools in place in order to stay the course, to know the direction you need to go because the life is going to try to throw you off. The satanic realm is going to try to do that, by the way, too. We're going to look at an example of that today. And so I want you and I to consider, how does this happen? How does the Bible, does God's Word really have tools, so to speak, to navigate life? And I want us to start off with a, with a topic that I think is not talked about enough, quite frankly, and that is temptation. How do you navigate temptation? You ever been tempted? So I'm standing here all alone, raising my hand. Y'all get your hands up. If you're human and you live as a fallen human in a fallen world, you've been tempted. And if you haven't or you don't think you have, you're not navigating it because you have. We all have and will be tempted. Now, when we look at temptation, sometimes we think of the big bad things, this big bad decision like committing adultery and destroying a marriage or whatever it may be. We think of the big bad things, but temptation is not necessarily the one big bad thing. It could be a lot of little compromises that add up to a big thing later. You see, temptation can come in all kinds of forms, and that's why you and I need to be prepared with the truth in order to navigate temptation, navigate life. And I want us to look in chapter 4 of Matthew and look at Jesus himself as an example. Jesus himself, who was tempted early on in his ministry. And you look back at chapter 3, I don't have time to get into it, but Jesus was baptized and he comes out of the water. You know the, the story, many of you, in Matthew. And, and God's word says that that. The heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit, descended on him like a dove. And then you hear the Father speaking from heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased and in who I love. So he's saying, This is my Son. So that's been established. And immediately after Jesus rises out of the water, God leads, his Spirit leads him into the wilderness. That's a desert. He leads him into 40 days of fasting, water and no food. So for 40 days before we get to chapter 4, Jesus had been fasting. Well, why did he do that? Why was fasting a thing in the New Testament? It was to prepare you and focus your heart and mind on your relationship with God. So God was preparing him for this moment, and he led him into it according to God's word. Let's look at chapter 4. I'm just going to look at two of the temptations Jesus went through out of the three that are listed for us in verses 1 through 11. But look at 1 through 4, chapter 4 of Matthew. And here's what Matthew says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, that is God's Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, that's pretty understandable, right? 
I go three hours and I'm starving, right? Verse 3 says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Then Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man, that is mankind, men and women, shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then he takes him to the temple, but I want to go down to verse 8. Look at the second, the third temptation, the expression of temptation. Verse 8 says, Again, the devil, that is the satanic realm, came and took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, that is, the, that is Satan, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is is written worship the lord your god and serve him only then the devil left and angels came and attended him now look back at the first encounter with temptation in verse one in particular and i want you to notice something it said that the Spirit led him there. Now, I'm going to get to that in just a moment, but the words led are important, led by the Spirit in particular, because it doesn't just mean leading as we tend to think of it. It means to go from lower to higher. It means to lead to a higher place. And the point simply being is that there's a much bigger picture than we can see in the immediate from this event, from this temptation. In other words, Jesus was there to go where? To the cross. Are y'all with me? Y'all wake up out there. He was, he was there to go to the cross, and he knew that. And Jesus was not going to get knocked off course in the midst of this storm because he was clear-eyed on what the truth, even when the temptation arrived. And it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit, God's Spirit. God had an ultimate purpose and mission for him, and he was led there to be tempted by the devil. Now, that phrase or those words, to be tempted, remained to be tested. God will allow your faith to be tested. By the way, that phrase is often used in the New Testament to refer to two things, a test of your faith and a test of your character. And those two things quite often are connected. A test of your, you ever been tested? Hello. It will test your faith, right? And who you are, who you claim to be, your character. And that's, that's where this is. That's what that is referring to. And Jesus has got to make a choice, just like you and I. He, he is an example of the choice to make. Now, what I want you to see as we walk through this very briefly this morning is two things. I want you to notice the nature of temptation. In other words, know your enemy. And I want you to notice Jesus' response. We can learn a lot on navigating temptation ourselves by those two things. If you're aware of how temptation tends to work, and you're aware of how to respond by the example of Christ. And we get both of those in this brief passage. Now notice verse 3. He goes on to say, The tempter, that is Satan, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... So Satan is casting doubt, but he's doing more than that. He's tempting him at the point of his, his need... Jesus was what? Hungry. 
And he hadn't eaten for 40 days, so very hungry, right? And Satan is saying, turn the stones into bread. So question, does Jesus have the power to turn the stones into bread? Absolutely he does. The temptation is not turning the stones into bread per se. The temptation is don't trust your father. Get off mission. You don't need to go to the cross. Lose sight of the big picture. Lose sight of the course and the purpose God has you here for. In other words, don't trust your father to meet your needs. Handle it yourself. That's basically what Satan is trying to tell him. Because we already know he's the son of God. How? God said it already back in chapter 3. The heavenly father has already established, you are the son of God. You are my son. Satan could not cast doubt on that. And that's not really what he's trying to do. He's trying to get Jesus to depend on himself and not his heavenly father. You ever been there? Uh-huh. I got an amen in the back. That's good. How about the rest of you? You ever been to the point where you are in a place where you've got a choice to make? You can trust your father you can trust God, Christ, or you can trust self. That's where Jesus was. He was being tempted to trust his power and his self rather than his heavenly father. So the tempter says, well, turn the stones of bread. You're starving to death, right? So let's look at the nature, first of all, of temptation to begin with. Know your enemy. Number one, temptation will show up when you're vulnerable. Hello. Are you there? When you're at an emotional low, a spiritual low, you need to know that. Others around you need to know that too. That's another topic I'll get to in a minute. Temptation knows when to show up, my friends. And if we are not self-aware, if we're not aware where we are, temptation will have us. It will present something that's not real, but feels so real. So temptation knows when to show up, show up when you're vulnerable. Number two, temptation will manipulate actual needs. It will turn actual needs into something much bigger than it should be. Because Jesus trusted that his father was not going to let him starve to death in the middle of the desert. But in that moment, it could appear that way. It could feel that way, Right? But it wasn't that way, and Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that he had a bigger purpose. He had to stay on course, and he chose to by being clear-eyed about the truth in the midst of the temptation. Speaking of which, let's look at verse 4. Look at how Jesus responded because it's very informative. Look at how Jesus chose to respond. He answered. He didn't, say, he didn't argue with Satan, did he? Hello, are you there? He, he did not. What did he say? He said it all three times in all three temptations during, during chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. He began every single rebuttal with the temptation as what? It is written. Why did he do that? Because he's quoting directly from God's word. In this case, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But it is key for you and I to understand that Jesus didn't try to argue with temptation. Jesus just quoted the truth. Now, how do you quote the truth? You've got to know the truth. You've got to have an understanding of the truth to begin with. And you've got to be willing to respond out of that truth. As we will see, Jesus over and over again said, It is written. He could have started with a lot of smart things because Jesus, I, I'm assuming you would think so too, was a pretty smart guy. 
He had all the wisdom at his disposal, and he said, it is written. It is in God's word. This is the truth. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Now, why would he quote this particular verse of all the verses he could have quoted? Two reasons, context and content. Context, if you go back to, and I don't have time to, but Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is Moses speaking to God's people who were in the midst of what? Wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus had just completed 40 days of fasting. Very interesting that the two are the same. But nonetheless, they had been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and Moses was encouraging them to continue to trust that God would provide. How did God provide in the wilderness? Y'all remember the story? He provided manna, and he provided water every single day. He walked with them through every grain of sand in that 40-year journey. And so Moses was saying to his people, don't begin to trust yourself because they struggled with that too, right? If you remember the story, you have to go back and look at it yourself. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, they struggled with trusting self versus trusting God. And so Jesus is quoting from that context, and he says, man shall not, mankind, we, believers, followers, shall not what? live by bread alone well if you've got food and water you're gonna live right but that's not what he's talking about that word live is the word i've used just last easter one of my favorites in the new testament it means what life as god has it so god's word is saying right in the middle of your storm right in the middle of your desert right in the middle of your temptation you can live but you're going to live not by the stuff you have, the bread or the water in this case. But listen, you're going to live by what? Every word of God. Every word that comes from his mouth. You know what that means? You're choosing to trust what the truth is. You are clear-eyed about the truth. You're anchored in the truth, and you're going to choose in the moment to respond by that truth. It's like you're in the storm in the boat, you can trust your instincts or you can trust the navigation tools. Which is going to be smarter? Trust the tools. Trust the truth. Not trust your instincts because temptation will twist your instincts and make something appear that it is not. Do we live in a world full of dis... This is our favorite word today, right? Disinformation. And it's not just Russia, by the way. There's all kinds of disinformation out there, Right? We've got to be in a place where we can distinguish between what is a bunch of baloney, even if it's well-packaged, and what is actually true. And God's Word does that for us. It is our basis to do so. Here's what Jesus did. We ought to take note of. Number one, Jesus never lost sight of the truth. And if you're not grounded in that truth, if you don't have that truth, if you're not, listen, not just knowing the truth, but not responding and growing in responsiveness to the truth, as, as you grow and understand what God's Word says about life and how I ought to approach life, what values I ought to have, et cetera, et cetera, what decisions I ought to make in life, then you and I are going to lose sight of what the truth is when temptation arrives. We're going to get twisted up in the storm. And we're going to lose sight of the, of the journey. Number two, Jesus was anchored in the truth. He couldn't just quote the truth. He lived it. He didn't just understand it. He trusted where the truth led him. 
Even when all his instincts might have been saying otherwise, get some bread out of the stones, get some bread. He was starving, he was hungry. He could have taken the shortcut. You see, God quite often will tell you and I to take the high road, not the low road. Which one's easier? Typically, the low road's easier. It's detrimental, but it's easier. The high road involves climbing. The high road involves things and challenges along the way. Now, look at the second temptation, and I'll wrap it up with this. Verse 8. He goes on and says, and again, the devil, he had already taken him to the temple and said, jump off the temple, trust God, he'll save you. And, you, and, and he says, you don't, you don't test God, you trust God. And then he goes in verse 8, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms and their splendor. All this I will give you, Satan tells Jesus, if you will do what? Bow down and worship me. Now, just a side note, how did he get to the temple and how did he get to this highest mountain to see all the kingdoms of the world? Most scholars believe, and I would conclude personally, that he is using either a vision or some kind of supernatural event to cause Jesus to be able to see these things, leading him to see these things and be tempted. So he's at this peak somewhere and he's showing him the splendor of the world and he's saying all of that is the shiny new toy. It's the bait on the hook. He's saying, look at all this splendor. By the way, that word splendor, interestingly, is where we get our English word doxology from. What's a doxology? It means to praise God, basically. It's a worship song. It acknowledges who God is, his essence and his character. But interestingly, also part two on this word splendor in the New Testament, it comes from another word in the New Testament that means to seem in other words, it's not what it seems. So Satan is offering Jesus something that he doesn't have the right to offer. Satan is offering Jesus something that Jesus it was already going to have when he walked out of the tomb. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And Satan is trying to pretend that he can offer Jesus. This is a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. You can do this now. You don't have to complete your journey. You can have it all now. Doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> how, how many of our, our culture today think, I don't have to work hard, I can have it all now. I don't have to do X, Y, Z, it's all right here, I can grab it now. H have you ever seen that work? No, it, it's, it's, it's the juicy worm on the hook. You bite, you bite the worm, you shouldn't be surprised about the hook, right? But yeah, we are, right? And so, so, Satan is tempting him with something the same, his to give. And then he says, verse 9, all this I will give to you. Temptation always comes with a price, regardless of the size of the temptation, my friends. And he says what? Here's the price. You have to what? Bow down and worship me. Worship the satanic realm. Not worship God, in other words. You see, Satan had always been working, according to the Bible, to be equal to God. And this was another way of him trying to do that. In fact, the word bow down, interestingly, is used sometimes to refer to somebody who's falling apart and is failing morally. It means to crumble. And he is saying, all you have to do is hit the ground and worship me, and all of this is yours. Let me go back to the nature of temptation. We've already discovered that temptation will show up when you're vulnerable, so be aware when you are vulnerable. 
Temptation can manipulate actual needs into a lot bigger things. Number three, temptation, the nature of it is that it makes things seem right when they aren't. It's so shiny. It is right there in front of me. It will be so awesome. Bite the hook. James talks about that, by the way, that imagery. And then finally, temptation always comes with a price. It doesn't call us to think about the price in the moment, but it does. Now look at what Jesus did. I'll wrap it up. I'll, let me wrap it up with his final response. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. You know what he just did? He practiced the authority he had the whole time. You know what you can do in the name of Christ? You've got the same authority. Listen, the satanic realm can harass you. The satanic realm can tempt you. Your old nature, by the way, can harass you. Your old nature, you know, it's not always the devil made me do it, right? Sometimes I'm perfectly willing on my own. Your, your, your old nature can harass you and tempt you, but it can't defeat you. Why? Because Jesus said it's finished. Jesus has given you the same power he has right here in this moment. And the authority to, to tell even the satanic realm to leave. That you have no authority over me. You can harass me, you can tempt me. Whatever God allows can happen, but you cannot defeat me. Because of what Christ has accomplished. And Jesus is away from me, Satan. And then he says once again, third time, what? Are you there? For it is written. I'm going right back to the truth of God's word. And he quotes out of Deuteronomy once again. What does he say? For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now this is a side note. But anything that becomes as important to you as God is worshiping something else other than God. Are you there? It's called idol worship. Anything that becomes just as important or more important to you than Christ, you've just begun worshiping something other than Christ. And God's word says there's only one that deserves our worship and our service. Who is it? God himself. It's Christ. And Jesus is pointing that out, and Satan had to leave the building, so to speak. And it says, the, verse 11, then the devil left, and angels came and attended him. Saw this interesting article on some research that was done, believe it or not, on temptation. Dr. Lauren Norgren is a senior lecturer at Northwestern University, the Kellogg School of Management, in Chicago, and she ran a series of experiments on college students and put them in various temp tempting uh, circumstances to study their responses. So she put some college students in a situation where they could begin smoking again. She put some students in situations. Uh, the, the second one that she did was putting them in uh, situations that they were tempted to forego studying. That's not a hard one if you're a college student probably and in some cases to eat junk food. So various scenarios, she puts them in these tempting situations and they, they study the, the students' responses to the temptations, just these, what we would con consider probably pretty minor uh, uh, temptations. But nonetheless, what she discovered 
is that we often have what she calls a restraint bias. What does she mean by that? She means that we have, and this is a quote, we often have much an overestimated uh, a perspective on our ability to restrain ourselves outside the heat of temptation, but once in it, we've overestimated our ability to handle it. Is that making sense? She found that consistent with students. They thought, I'll never, I'll never give in. I'll never compromise here. But in the midst of the heat, in the midst of the temptation, they found compromise over and over again. And here's what she said. Some of this is very biblically aligned, believe it or not, even though it's coming from a secular university. It says, those who are most confident about their self-control are the most likely to give in to temptation. So if you're cocky, going into temptation, not a good idea. And she goes on to say this about the key to handling temptation, which I believe is said 2,000 years ago, plus in God's word. The key is simply to avoid situations where vices and other weaknesses thrive, and most importantly for individuals to keep a humble view of their willpower. So she said two things that God's word says. God's word says flee from what? Flee from evil. Don't run towards it. Flee from it. And she also says, don't trust yourself. Don't have an overestimated power of your own willpower. I'll get it out. Overestimated view of your own willpower. God's word says, trust Christ, not yourself. God's word says, trust the truth of his word, not who you think you are in a given moment. So let me leave you with this. Three responses that I see from Jesus' example on navigating temptation. Number one. Be aware of when and how you are vulnerable. Know your enemy. And, know, and sometimes, listen, your enemy is yourself. Know when and how you are vulnerable. And be wise about what you allow yourself to be around. Number two, be aware of and committed to the truth. Don't just grow in your understanding of God's word. Grow in your responsiveness to God's word. That's how you and I are going to be at a better place to navigate temptation. And finally, don't navigate life on your own. You've heard me say this a million times already this year. We are better together. We're not just better together. We're called to do life together. And you and I ought to have people in our lives that can be a point of support when we're struggling with something. Maybe it's a past addiction that you have. It's probably not a great idea for an alcoholic, for example, to go to a bar with his friends, even if you're intending to, to be in a social setting, right? Are, are y'all awake today? <laughs> We've got post-Easter slumberism going on today, I can tell. So he's telling us, don't do this. God's word says, don't do this alone. Have people, believers that are actually following Christ, or not perfect people, but growing people that can say something and also could be a point of support in the midst of life. Because listen, if we don't, temptation will win. We get an overestimation of our ability. Or listen, even worse, we have a fear in the body of Christ to admit that I've been tempted. That's not good. We can be honest in this body, right? I hope. Because Satan's going to use that on us if we're not. We can be honest about the fact that we are tempted and, and or maybe have failed in some temptations in our lives. It is not wrong to admit that. 
It is actually smart and wise. And so God's word says, do this together. Don't navigate the storm on your own. Have relationships in your life that can be a point of support and even accountability, a point of strength for you and I. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, as always, for your word. And thank you for the example of, of Christ himself that was tempted, that was called to compromise the course that you had set for his life. It certainly would have been easier for him to do so, to avoid the cross, to meet his own needs and take the immediate and sacrifice what it is you had called him to do. But he chose to stay the course. Thank you, Father, for that example. And may we too, when the storms come out of nowhere, when the temptation blindsides us, may we be in a position to navigate. May we use the truth, be clear-eyed and clear-hearted about what the reality and the truth is, regardless of what the world around us might say. Father, help us navigate temptation. Help us make the right choice, not the easy choice. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.